Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Uh, slightly late in the game, but uh, I'm sure we have plenty to cover today. Roland Garros concluded more than 48 hours ago, and we have good reason uh, to record this slightly late because uh, we wanted to have Mark Woodford join, rejoin the show after, uh, I think it's his third time on the show. And we want his analysis along with Matt Zemek's analysis to break down what uh, happened in the last fortnight. And there are a lot of questions that I've gathered from the think tank. And uh, I'm sure uh, these two guys are more than able to satisfy, you know, what the questions have come in. So on that note, uh, welcome to the show, guys. Matt, it's your home show, so but still, welcome both. Thank you, Sakib. And, 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 and as Sakib's normal co-host, but someone who's on this show in a guest capacity, I just want to say, Mark, thank you for your generosity to Sakib and Tennis with an Accent. We really appreciate it. That, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I know that uh, I have uh, uh, been on the show a, a couple of times and uh, uh, ha- have enjoyed it, have enjoyed the, the questions and, you know, trying to cover what's happening in tennis. And, um, you, you know, so I, I do get a, a, a real kick out of jumping on the show here. I know you, there must be some jet lag. You're back in California. You took a flight from Paris where you worked for the entire fortnight. So before we get into the the, the tennis stuff, the Rafa Nadal, the Igor Schwantek stuff. So, Mark, you were also in New York, and th- this is an unprecedented year. We've all used this term so many times due to the pandemic. Uh, how is the French Open bubble uh, different than New York? What were your observations? And uh, if you want to just let the listeners know, no critique, but your personal experience between the two. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I definitely was in in New York for the for the two weeks um, for the fortnight, and um, it was a little different. I, I I think I with bottom line is I felt secure um, and safe going to both tournaments. Um, there was a a different approach. I think the, the USTA did a phenomenal job in um, handling and separating the media um, journalists away from the players. Uh, I, I think as you. You're, you and your listeners probably are aware that the players stayed in a in two hotels that were a little further away than uh, perhaps normal, um, and, and the media we stayed very close by. We we were located in two um, properties, uh, you know, right opposite LaGuardia. So under normal circumstances, <laughs> we were probably deal, would deal with a lot of uh, fly flights, planes taking off and landing. But of course, with the you know the the uh, reduced travel industry as well, restricted travel industry, it wasn't too bad. So this was the first time for me that I stayed this close to the site at the US Open. So uh, brilliant that I could get back and forth between the hotel and the grounds within five minutes. Um, the, um, the facilities, look, it was just, it was very, it was so eerily quiet in both, without a doubt. Um, but I'll start with the US Open. I, I just you know, without having the crowds, you would walk the grounds and you would see players and you would see tennis officialdom, but that was it. And and I don't, uh, you know, for me, um, it took me about four to five days before uh, I was able to leave the booth, the commentary booth. Uh, As I waited, I had some time in between matches where I, I actually walked outside and just tried to go and watch a couple of matches with uh, extra time up my sleeve. And um, look, I was shocked. I, w- I was so shocked at um, the lack of atmosphere. So in, having said that, 
the players themselves need to be congratulated at the US Open. The fact that they played with zero crowds, um, you know, there, there were probably a few officials that were watching the matches on Arthur Ashe Stadium, but uh, the court that I went to was out the back and uh, to watch a, an Australian player. And I, I heard the leaves off the tree, the leaves of the, on the tree rustling in the wind. It was almost like I could hear them land on the, on the surface, on the concrete. Um, it just, they were playing these phenomenally played uh, points and I'm expecting the crowd applause and you just heard, would hear one person um, clap. It just was so very different. Um, but I don't think the tennis suffered too much uh, from, from my point of view, but um, I, I, I just, yeah, <laughs> it was an adjustment. And I think uh, towards the end of the tournament, that's where the USTA encouraged some of their staff and employees that were working on site that, you know, just to welcome them into Ash Stadium so that it offered some the players some um, uh, environment, atmosphere that they could feed off of. Um, moving to Roland Garros where, you know, a thousand fans were allowed through the gates every day. Um, you, you know, there were probably more people working behind the scenes than what were allowed through the gates. Um, uh, testing was, was very different, different tests altogether. Uh, and we, we were tested even as media, uh, as uh, commentators, we were, we were tested once a week instead of at the U S open, we were tested uh, every four days um, the French Open, we were tested once a week. And uh, the turnaround time took a little longer um, than what the testing uh, took here in the US, but nonetheless, certainly felt very comfortable. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think the players certainly appreciated playing in front of a crowd, even though it was minimal amount of people. That's a very interesting observation. And let me bring Matt in because he just wrote a piece uh, for our site and uh, where he described the not so normal times, but multiple things could be true. So Matt, for the listening audience, if you want to just add to what Mark said and take it from there, like having a crowd, a minimal crowd, but still more than what we had at the US Open. So how does that change in your commentary between the two tournaments? And of course, the French had the US Open as a template uh, at the back of their minds on what to do and what not to do. So elaborate on that. Well, I think that in terms of, you know, what, what made these tournaments from my viewpoint abnormal is first and foremost that they're not occurring within the context of a normal tour flow. You know, this is not uh, the, you know, we didn't have a full proper summer hardcore season and we didn't have a full clay season either. So, you know, the, just right there, you don't have the normal ingredients uh, you know, of a normal tour season. And, and then the other particularly big part, Sakib, is that, you know, w between the French Open and Wimbledon, it's only three weeks, not that long a time. Of course, it used to be only two, um, but it's on the same continent. So the players who are in France, you know, they, they rent uh, a location to stay for a little while or they go to Hala or Queens, you know, for the grass warm-ups and, and so on and so forth. So there's an established rhythm and they're not traveling a great distance. So they can, you know, either, you know, get their matches in on grass before Wimbledon or they can just, um, you know, relax and, and, and uh, rejuvenate, maybe play a one or two exhibition matches 
you know, the, in the days right before Wimbledon. So you're, you're still right in the same place. But this was everyone packing up from North America, from New York, and then going across the continent. So you have the transcontinental dimension of, of this, and then you have the surface transition as well. So very different from the French Open to Wimbledon transition in that you had transcontinental travel and moreover, with the the requirements of the pandemic, you've you had the players, they had to be in New York, you know, at least a week to 10 days, if not two weeks before. And of course, you know, any of the players who played in Cincinnati, New York, you know, the Cincinnati tournament being played in New York. So they really had to be there, you know, the second week of August, roughly. And then they had to just be rooted there, bolted down in New York. So um, if you were, uh, you know, a player who went the distance or went close to the distance at the U.S. Open, you know, you were in New York for a solid month. And then you had to pack everything up, go travel across to Europe and play the French Open in two weeks. And, and you know, we really saw that catch up with the, the certainly the men's finalists. I mean, Naomi Osaka didn't compete, but, um, you know, Victoria Azarenka as well. You know, she was asked to play so much tennis that caught up with her. And then, of course, you know, Alexander Zverev was sick. And Dominic team, he just ran completely out of gas uh, against Diego Schwartzman. So, you know, it, it just wasn't a normal setup. I think if you had four weeks between these tournaments with the transcontinental travel and, and the surface transition, you might have seen team uh, and Azarenka make make really uh, make deeper runs than what they did. You know, team said it was not a disappointing French Open for him. He knows he gave what what was there to give. It's just that what was there to give wasn't that much. So there were so many circumstances that just do not did not reflect a normal progression of the tour. Uh, you know, usually when you move from one continent to another. It's for the beginning of a season, a surface-specific season. So this was definitely not that. And I just want to say, does this take away from what uh, Igor Sviatek and uh, Rafael Nadal achieved? No, hardly. I mean, they they had to deal with the limited and uh, unprecedented conditions and, and and circumstances, just as everyone else did. I mean, they they so they were facing these hardships and uncertainties and they triumphed over them. So bully to them, uh, they did a great job, but let's not say it was normal. And so the way we assess players in tournaments under normal circumstances, those frameworks just don't apply to these tournaments. Uh, very well said and uh, quite to unpack. And I'll probably bring back some of the excellent points you made uh, later in the show and uh, ask you to break down some of the players who will, who, who's, you know, two weeks we'll review. But Matt uh, said a very important thing, like an established rhythm. So Mark, uh, Rafa Nadal is a man of repetitions, and we all know his legendary, you know, how his status, how he never, he's always a little insecure in his ability, even after dominating the clay circuit for like 15 years. He always is very humble and doesn't take anything for granted. So I was in a small group of people. Of course, it's never silly to pick Novak Djokovic, but I firmly believe that Djokovic will win this final because he was playing at a higher level. Of course, it's Nadal at Chartrier. I learned my lesson. But Djokovic was really playing with a higher level of confidence and also had a lot of matches under his belt. And contrary to what Nadal's strength is, he, lots, he likes to spend a lot of hours on court. Sometimes he's had an easy match and he goes and spends two, three hours of practice. So that's all known. 
So how surprised were you with the final outcome uh, of the men's final? Because that was uh, one of the, I think, not one of the grandest match in terms of most majors combined on court. And every time these two guys will get together, that's what's going to happen in future. So break down the final in terms of the outcome, what you saw and did you expect that or how surprised were you? So what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there, there are times that keep, I hope, I wish that I had a crystal ball to look into, um, you know, the possible outcomes. And, uh, you know, there's, that, that's why <laughs> I guess as commentators, you know, that you try to back yourself up with, you know, theories as to why, you know, who should win, why they should win. Um, you know, the final was so anticipated. And I think that's the, the downside of these two reaching the final is that, that it wasn't enjoyed by uh, as many people. I, you, we were talking about this before the match, the final actually went on the court, that under normal circumstances, the feverish, uh, frantic uh, crowd that would have been there in anticipation for this men's final um, it just it, it would have rocked the new roof off of its hinges uh, at Roland Garros there. But um, uh, I look at when when you try to put put these two together, one guy Novak Djokovic who had, had was unbeaten all year. Uh, you know, even though he, he went out in extreme circumstances at the U.S. Open, I don't count that as a loss. Um, so someone who had who, who was unbeaten all year long coming up, up against someone who's never, who's unbeaten in finals of Roland Garros. And uh, um, I, I think I had uh, a little, a slight favoritism towards Rafa, given, you know, his incredible record on clay. Um, I, I felt like that Novak in the lead up, uh, that the couple of matches beforehand, uh, the quarterfinals against Karina Buster, um, and then the long match with City Pass, that maybe the edge my, was was taken away from him the shine, um, uh, but I I just really emphasised the first set. Um, you know, for me, I, I felt like that if Rafa could take that first set, that you, you know he would ultimately go on to win the the title in four sets. I just thought the boost of confidence that he would um, you know obtain from winning that first set. But on the flip side, if Djokovic had won the first set, I felt like that. You know, uh, given given that it was, I think back to 2015 or 14 was the last time that Rafa, uh, you know, had beaten Djokovic at Roland Garros um, on, on clay, perhaps um, that 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 would you know allow Djokovic to you know get get the tie take the title. But um, I never anticipated the scoreline in the first two sets. Uh, love and two. Little did I anticipate that Djokovic would hit less than 10 unforced errors in the final. Um, you know, little did I think um, that Rafa wouldn't experience more nerves getting over the finishing line, given the, the heaviness, the weight of winning 13 Grand Slams, uh, 13 Roland Garros titles, and ultimately reaching Grand Slam title number 20. Um, it, given the historic proportions that that brings, um, it, you know he showed he showed a, a bit of nerves, uh, you know, early in set three when he dropped his serve for the first time in the match. Um, uh, but I, I, yeah, <laughs> I was just I, 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 and I again I said on air when I was working with the world feed that I highly doubt that my vocabulary runs deep enough to adequately describe, um, you, you know, the the achievement that Rafa um, completed on the weekend. 
Uh, it took my breath away, um, but I felt like that Djokovic had the shine taken. He was a little muted, uh, probably a little fatigued from the two previous matches. And I think the, the, the toll, uh, as Matt had mentioned, just the unusual lead-up coming from the US Open to transition onto the clay, he probably did it better than anyone, Novak Djokovic, but, you know, I, I think we could probably point towards that. It, it just caught up with him in the end, in the final. Sure. So let, let me stay with you, Mark, for one more uh, question. So tactically, if you look at the Schwartzman match and uh, the Djokovic match, Nadal was uh, super aggressive. He was winning a lot of rallies ever shorter, like one to four uh, uh, point length rally. And when the rally went longer, both Diego and Novak were, you know, winning their share. And Novak was actually very equal. They, I think there's a stat I saw, uh, rally balls that were longer than five. Uh, they won 52 and 53 respectively. So did Rafa's uh, aggressive tactics surprise you? Or you think, that, is that the best tactical match he's played against Djokovic? Well, for, for me, I think it was the, the best match, the best final that I've seen him play. I think there was one other final against Federer where for a set, um, I felt like he was untouchable. And that this is against someone who played, was trying to play uh, ultra aggressive on that day, Federer, um, uh, and in warmer conditions. Uh, but I think this was the most complete match that I've seen Rafa in all of the, the 13 finals. Um, the conditions, I think, you know, much was played and spoken about the conditions on the, on the eve of the, the tournament, um, given the damp, wet conditions, the heaviness of the courts, the ball change, moving from Babylon balls to this Wilson ball. But, you know, in hindsight, you don't get to win 13 Grand Slam, uh, 13 Roland Garros titles without adapting to a variety of conditions in all of the years that he has played there. And the roof. Um, and, and the roof. And, and look, quite frankly, um, the Chatrier court was not as exposed to the wet, uh, damp conditions as much as, it, uh, as all of the other courts that didn't have a roof. So Rafa this year uh, had the, uh, uh, I guess, the experience of not having to play a match on the heavier courts outside. Um, uh, my, a colleague of mine uh, commentating with, we, we were discussing that generally in the past, uh, the, the officials at Roland Garros would place the, the marquee names just once, uh, one match on Longlen, which is the heaviest and the slowest of all the courts at Roland Garros. This year, it never happened. Um, whether they made uh, an internal decision to try and protect Rafa, um, but the same could be said, Novak, he, I don't think he played on, on Longlem uh, at, at all. Um, so that the court on Chatrier didn't play as slow as what um, the other courts, albeit, um, you know, a lot of stats came into the equation. Apparently the court was playing 8% slower than previous years. So the, the slower court allowed Rafa to actually stand a little closer to return serve than normal. He was able to hit through the ball more so than normal. Then when, when Roland Garros is played in the finer, sunnier conditions and the court plays livelier. So, you know, once again, I think, he, yes, he played tactically very smart. Um, the conditions, I think, um, 
were a little over that that were supposed to be against him. I think they were overemphasized. Um, uh, but but it also took the pace of shot off of Djokovic's shots. Um, you know, I, I, the only thing that I was wary of before the final was that Djokovic was would be able to, and he's shown it in the past on hard courts when he plays Rafa, that he's able to change direction and send the ball up the line off of forehand and backhand uh, a lot more frequently and with freedom. And he receives benefit from that. Uh, he has a stronger uh, court position, uh, closer to the baseline, um, but he wasn't able to adapt. He wasn't able to employ that in the final. I think once Rafa got that early service break, um, whether Novak felt like that he would be able to you know, play his way back in the match like he did against Carreno Buster, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but it just didn't happen. I think Rafa, yeah, you, you know, played aggressively, uh, never deviated from his game plan and uh, in the end, you know, went home with that great trophy. Sure. So I'll come back with uh, more on this match, but let me bring Matt here, who's uh, our in-house expert for the inner game, not only in tennis and sport. Matt writes a lot about professional football, basketball, college football in the U.S. and tennis. So Matt, uh, inner game post-match for this uh, clash of the Titans. Does this change anything uh, psychologically for Nadal when he faces off Djokovic outside of clay? Because uh, on clay, Rafa hasn't lost to Novak since 2016 Rome. But overall in hard courts, he's had a hard time against Novak. So does the outcome of this match give the legendary Rafa Nadal more freedom in this matchup? You know, I, 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 don't think it, I don't think it really does just because hard courts are, are a different beast and the ability of Djokovic to hit his flat shots is, is rewarded more on hard courts. And, you know, if we get, if we get to the uh, Australian Open, I mean, I just see that as a very different set of circumstances. But I think that the main story, Sakib, is just that this reaffirms Nadal on clay and, that, and how hard it's, it is going to be for Djokovic to win in a Roland Garros final against Rafa. You know, this was the first time in six years that this particular match, not Rafael generally, but Rafael in a Roland Garros final had occurred. And, you know, so Djokovic had six years. He's been waiting six years for this. Something would always come up. You know, the injury in 2017, Dominic team last year in that wins, wind tunnel, uh, before they put the roof on on Chatrier this year, something always came up. Uh, and, you know, and in 2015, of course, Djokovic won, but it was a very diminished version of Nadal in the quarterfinals, and it just didn't have the same feel. I mean, jo- Djokovic was widely expected to win that match. We could all see that Rafa was reduced physically and psychologically. So six years since the last Roland Garros final, and I think, you know, keep in mind, in 2021, there, it's going to be in uh, early June. So the next Roland Garros is just eight months away. That, that's going to creep up on us fairly quickly. And so if they meet, um, I think what this match simply does is it, it, that reinforces the, the advantage Nadal regularly has in a Roland Garros final when he is reasonably fit, you know, unlike 2015 uh, in the quarters. So I, I just think that it reinforces – the, the primacy of Nadal on clay. I mean, it was very legitimate and reasonable to think that J- 
Djokovic was finally going to break through this time. I mean, I, I went into the final saying I didn't know what was going to happen because it's pandemic tennis. It's Roland Garros in October. It's very unprecedented. You know, there's no real template, you know, for, for much of uh, sports in a pandemic or tennis in a pandemic. So I really went into the match agnostic and, and, and not knowing what to expect. I think the one thing we can say is that if it's Djokovic and Rafa in a Roland Garros final, as great as Djokovic has been the last two years on all the other services, I think it just reinforces the clay equation. I, I really don't uh, have a strong take in terms of uh, how it's going to affect hard courts or maybe a Wimbledon reunion on grass next summer. Uh, sure. So, Matt, let me stay with you for one more round here. So, Novak Djokovic, uh, you know Mert, another good friend of ours, uh, openly tweeted that uh, Djokovic at first level, at the first set, his level was exceptional and he may have big a lot of ATP pros. Do you see that differently? I also thought Djokovic was playing really good. At least the first three or four games, I thought his level was good and I still thought he'll make a typical Novak-like turnaround all, uh, with all due respect to Nadal. You know, I still thought Djokovic was going to make that set competitive when that sixth love happened. Uh, what do you, how do you assess Djokovic's level in the first set or even the second set? Uh, there's a big divide on Twitter, but I want to hear how you saw those two sets, and then maybe we can throw the same question to Mark. Well, you know, the, the foundation on which the Djokovic empire has been built is that he's going to win the most important points of a match more than anyone else. And I would still say... Now, Nadal kicked his butt on Sunday. We, 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 we know that. We saw that. We don't have to pretend it didn't happen. But in terms of the larger workings of the past decade and specifically the past five, six years, really dating back to the 2014 Wimbledon final when Djokovic beat Federer in five sets after blowing that lead late in the fourth set but then having to save a break point midway through the fifth, Ever since that particular match, he has been the giant of the big three. And I mean, the other, not that Nadal and Federer have been chumps, of course, but Djokovic has been the best big point player of the big three since that moment six years ago. And so, you know, we've saw it in the 2019 Wimbledon final. We saw it against Dominic Team. Djokovic is going to win the, big, the biggest points of a match more often than anybody else. And so to, to now translate that to Sunday and specifically that first set, what did we see? It was a bagel set, and yet it was the closest bagel set I've probably ever seen because nearly every game was going to deuce, multiple deuces. It, it, every game was on the razor's edge. But what happened? Djokovic no longer won the most important points of a set. I and mean, he had been riding this amazing luck at the roulette wheel I mean, obviously, due to his own excellence, his own remarkable capacity to reduce mistakes when the points are extremely significant. I mean, it's Djokovic's work, but it's still, at the same time, an amazing run of confidence and everything coming together for him. And when he got to that first set, Nadal won those hinge point moments. And with Nadal taking charge in those hinge point moments, that led to that had a domino effect on the rest of the match. If Djokovic had converted a few of those three break points he had in the first few games of the match, does anyone think this is a straight set conclusion? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say practically no one. Uh, so it was as though Djokovic's 
remarkable run. Remember, he had not lost a natural match. You know, he was defaulted against Pablo Carreño Busta uh, for the, the incident at the U.S. Open, but he had not lost uh, a natural match. And so th this was Djokovic finally running into, as far as I see it, he was finally running into the, the, the odds evening out a little bit. Finally, there was someone else who was winning the hinge point moments in a match, and it just it came to an end at the wrong time. You know, it, he would have liked it, this to have happened uh, in, in a less important tournament, in a less important moment, but this is just how things worked out. So if I'm Djokovic, I'm not especially disappointed. I'm not, because I've had a phenomenal year, to the extent that we can call it a year. It's not really a season. It's more of a, a, a disjointed uh, collection of scattered tournaments. But nevertheless, he's barely lost it all. It's Rafa on clay at Roland Garros. Uh, you, you know, if, if I'm Djokovic, I, I find this loss actually fairly easy to psychologically process. And then I, I, I uh, wipe the slate clean. I get ready for 2021. I know what's, you know, I know what to expect in a pandemic tennis situation. I go to Melbourne and I, and I try to win the three majors in a year, you know, this the, the, only one major in a year. That's not what Djokovic expected. Obviously he didn't have a chance to defend Wimbledon, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at 2021 if I'm Djokovic and saying, Hey, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to learn from this occasion. Right, so Mark, you can come in and, uh, how do you view Djokovic's level uh, and add to what Matt said? If you feel differently, please fire away. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think, you know, Matt hit upon a good point there. The first set, you know, took 45 minutes and it was a six love set. The first four games did set the tone. Um, you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, a little earlier that the first, the, the, the jump, the first break of serve went against Djokovic. He lost, he started serving the, the first game of the match was up 40-15 and ended up dropping serve. Um, and Rafa followed up with a very tense, tough game. Uh, he held for two love. And once more, Djokovic lost his serve um, to go three love. He had break points. Really, the first set probably hinged on that three love game. Um, there were three break points. And, and yet, uh, Novak never clinched any of them. So, um, yeah, it's, it really set, set the tone. Um, uh, and, you, you know, in the very first game of set two, um, Novak had to fight tooth and nail just to hold serve. He served, uh, saved two break points um, in that first game. Uh, and, and then it was, uh, I think, a lengthy eight-minute game the second time Novak served in set number two, and he lost that serve. So it was very much those key points as Matt uh, had pointed out, that Djokovic in the past or maybe of recent times when he's played against Rafa on other surfaces, he's been able to uh, withstand um, uh, the, the, the assault by Rafa um, and, and kept, would, he would be the one that would win those key points. But in the final on Sunday, to total reversal. Um, uh, you, you know, it, look, it could, you could even say that it might have been the headspace for, for Novak heading into the match. Um, I was speaking to Jim Courier afterwards, um, who was calling the match for the Tennis Channel. And he, he said he went out to watch both players warm up for the match. And uh, he said Rafa was, you know, jumping out of his skin. You, you know, 
when you go past Rafa warming up for a match, he, he, he treats it like it is the match. I mean, he just was uber professional, um, held his head high, was in good spirits. Uh, and, and then he swung by Novak Djokovic's court um, and he said that he, he didn't spend a lot of time warming up for the match, but he actually ended the session very agitated and distracted that he was complaining about his serve, uh, was worried about the ball toss. Um, and kind of the career felt like that maybe the session was cut short. Um, but you don't want to take those vibes, uh, speaking from experience, you don't want to take those vibes uh, from the Sorry, practice court onto um, the match court. And, and I think that's where Novak, unfortunately, um, you know, he'd started off, you know, he, he just, uh, well, it was not the Djokovic that um, has started off in, in better fashion uh, through, through each of the matches that he played in the tournament and, uh, um, you know, had to, play, had to play reactive tennis. And, I, I, you know, that's not a position that Novak is um, certainly not able to play his best tennis when he's reacting. He's, he's much more proactive. Yeah, I think uh, also Boris Becker, who coached Djokovic uh, for two of those, uh, you know, golden years, I think was commentating uh, in Germany. And I think he said on the German network that Djokovic couldn't have done anything different, if I get the translation right from uh, Twitter uh, feed. And he said, Nadal, this was the best he's played against uh, Novak. So your thoughts on that? Again, uh, Becker was as close to Novak as, you know, anyone could be during that, that run. And, uh, and, and some believe these comments... Uh, are not accurate again, you know, but we are not here to discuss the validity, but uh, your view on what Boris said, it was Novak that good and still come, came in short. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, more, more or less, I, I just don't know whether there was enough in the gas tank um, emotionally for Novak. Uh, I, I thought his first first few rounds of the tournament and, and, you know, look, both, both of them, uh, you know, had, I, I would say soft draws the first three rounds, you, you know, Novak was on cruise mode and, and certainly throwing in his, um, dr- the drop shots, which, which, you, you know, he littered, uh, opponents with drop shots and he burnt e- every one of them with six, the, the win rate behind those drop shots. Um, but, Look, I, th- I think it just, it, it seemed to catch up with him. I don't, uh, Hashinov in, in late in the third set in the fourth round, uh, you know, he, he made Novak earn a straight set victory. Um, the dilemma that he faced with that neck and the left, left arm concerns. Uh, and I think, I think that was more psychological um, than, than actual, that it was just tension that had built up um, but of course, that was you know Corona Booster. Uh, we know what happened at the U.S. Open. So I think that kind of you know wasn't helpful for Djokovic. It, it took so much emotional energy out of his game. And then you know he the way he stoically remained in control of his emotions, his composure was unbelievable uh, against Tsitsipas. Um, to, to stop him in five sets. So I don't think, for me, that there was a lot left in the tank of Djokovic. So I don't believe that he would have been able to change, um, you know, too much in his game. I just don't, uh, you know, when you're running low, uh, you're just running low, um, uh, unfortunately. 
No, that's, that, that's definitely a fine observation. So, Matt, uh, Mark just mentioned Tsitsipas, and we've been talking about this guy now for more than a year on our podcast, and you've written about him. Uh, he's part of the small crowd. That's the, the way I see it right now. It's a big three. Then it's Dominic team, who I think has clearly distanced himself from the Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev group, but then they, the other three are really close. So how important was this tournament for Tsitsipas, and how groundbreaking were sets three and four against Djokovic and Murta Tunga feels at fourth set, uh, Sitsipas won. He was talking to me the other day, said that felt like the same quality of a big three match. You know, that set had all the ingredients. So how do you see Sitsipas's uh, performance in this tournament? And if you want to throw in the Hamburg final that he played against Rublev, you think that all caught up? Uh, unpack it the way you feel is most appropriate. Yeah, I think the, the, the point that you hit on, Saka, which is really uh, uh, important to emphasize is, is the, the, the fight back against Djokovic. Even though he didn't win the match, it's a totally different reality for Tsitsipas having pushed that match to five compared to if he had lost that match in straights. It's a, it's a totally different perspective for him as he enters uh, 2021 at the majors because these things do generally go – in stages. I mean, look, for example, at Dominic Team. You know, Rafa kicked him around uh, in the 2018 Roland Garros final. That was his baptism. So then in 2019, okay, he won a set. You know, he pushed Nadal a little bit more, forced Nadal uh, to, to, to do a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper. And then he goes to five sets with Djokovic in Australia. If, if Team had not... Uh, gone through that progression and if he had not pushed Djokovic to five sets in Australia uh, you know if he had not gotten uh, more of a taste of what it is to compete deep in a major final uh, over the past two years do we think that he would have beaten Zverev in that U.S. Open final I personally doubt it I think that the fact that he was able to breathe that thinner air under greater pressure that certainly helped him to stay the course when he fell behind two sets and then went to handle that nerve addled ending in New York. So as we translate that to Sitsipas, you know, being able to fight deep into a fifth set, being able to not give up when down two sets against Djokovic to find a way to win, not just one set, but two. Uh, and Djokovic was playing pretty well at the time. So it's not as though Djokovic collapsed. This was Sitsipas, you know, just rising to, uh, a very high level, um, th- being able to do that, it's going to pay off for him, uh, you know, assuming that he doesn't get injured or suffer any kind of off-court setback, it's going to pay off for him at some point in the future. Maybe not 2021, but if he finds himself in a major semifinal in 2022, you know, he's going to be able to look back at this and, and, and realize what he's capable of. So that it's, it's such a difference between, the outcome we actually had, and if, if Sitsipas had quietly lost in straights, much as he did to Nadal uh, in his first major semifinal in 2019 in, in Australia. So that, that makes a really big difference. Uh, it, the other note about Sitsipas, as bad as that loss to Chorich was at the U.S. Open, it cleared the deck for him in terms of being able to make that transition uh, from North America to Europe, as I had mentioned earlier. Uh, keep in, and also keep in mind that you know Nadal, by not playing the U.S. Open, he he made decisions that prioritized Roland Garros, which you know should not surprise us at all. 
And, and so when we compare players who made that transition, who play, tried to play on both continents compared to the players who either crashed out early in New York or who never went to New York at all, we can see a difference in terms of um, the, their fr respective French Open outcomes. That, that was pretty clear. You know, Matt, I, what I might um, add there, uh, that not, not to disagree with you, but I, I'm not sure that uh, there has been any resolution for Tsitsipas uh, since the US Open. Um, you know, I was privy to be calling that match that he lost against Borna Choric. And uh, I, I, even though that's not a, it's not a bad loss, uh, Choric certainly played well. But I think it was some, a, a match that really wasn't played between Stefanos and, uh, and uh, Borna. I felt like that there was a third person involved in the outcome of that match, and that was Sitsipas's father. Um, you, you know, it, it uh, bothered me as a commentator to be, to be witnessing the, the outcome of that match and to see the father sitting as close as he was to the court, right in the middle. Um, the attention was on him. Um, I was disappointed with... Uh, the chair umpire uh, and with the linesman that they did not um, step up to the plate. And uh, there, there was, I, I don't know if he, certainly he might've got one code violation. I don't, I don't even know if he received the one code violation for coaching. Um, but, but that was destructive. Um, the, the having his father sitting there and talking and um, constantly, it was almost every point. Uh, and I, and I, I, I mean, I, look, I give him a lot of credit bouncing back and, and reaching the semifinals, but I, I, I would like to see further resolution. Um, you know, it needs to be settled. I, I, I really do struggle. Um, I, I think City uh, Pass, you know, in the future, um, maybe before the year ends, uh, to, to take on board someone who is prepared to step up and maybe do some coaching um, and, and not rely upon his father. Um, I, I think it is, it is so difficult to be a parent and a coach at that level. Um, I think it's near impossible. So, um, you, you know, but Tsitsipas, I agree with you, played a fantastic match in the end uh, against, jo against Djokovic at, at the French Open. It's almost like he relaxed after going down two sets to love and I, he took a bathroom break, and it was a very lengthy bathroom break. But, but maybe during that time, he just kind of relaxed. Maybe he realized, recognized that he's out of the tournament. And perhaps being that more, much more relaxed and accepting that, you, you know, <laughs> the, the result was, uh, you know, not going to maybe go his way. He came out and he started to play some some of the best tennis that I've seen him play um, in, in quite some time, and he just he didn't try to play too too well. He actually played controlled level of tennis, and boy, it uh, it almost got him there. But uh, unfortunately, you know, having to play catch up from two sets to love down, it probably contributed to him being you know hurting himself or re-injuring himself, um, uh, and you know may may put him out for a couple more weeks while he rehabs. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, that's, that's for me, City Pass is one of the most exciting younger prospects coming up, um, you know, after the top three or top four, if you throw Dominic team into the, into the top four.
No, I think excellent points by you both. And I would also like to throw in my two cents. In the Hamburg final two, he served for the title. This time his dad wasn't there and still was broken by Rublev and Rublev won the tournament. So yeah, Sitsipas is a very fascinating work in progress. We were lucky to have him on this podcast when he was just uh, you know, making his uh, way on the tour. And yeah, he's uh, such a fascinating follower and a lot of potential. So Mark, let me ask you about Dominic team. Matt had earlier said that, you know, the the cross-continental travel in only a two-week window uh, always almost made it impossible for Dominic team to win this title. And he himself was very happy and satisfied uh, how these two majors ended. But on Austrian TV, he had said that the match before uh, Hugo Gaston, he had like some stomach, a stomach issue. So yep. not food poisoning. So that is what drained him physically in yep. the drop shot match. So right. how, how do you see his tournament, his progression? And he's, he almost, you know, could have been in the th- you know, third semifinal yeah. uh, if he had beaten uh, Diego Schwartzman. So breakdown team for our listeners. How, how many strides has he made the last few years? Well, he's, he's, made, uh, he's made huge strides. And, and I, I think the, the, the win at the US Open, you, you know, he had played his part in experiencing what, it, what it's like losing in the finals. Uh, so, you know, it, he, he was justly rewarded. Um, by winning the US Open. Now, if there's anyone that could adapt from the hard courts to the clay, um, I, I think Djokovic did an, an amazing job of uh, uh, switching surfaces so quickly. I think Dominic Team was one that I really expected to make the adjustments without, uh, without too many problems. However, the excitement of winning your first Grand Slam is, you know, um, I, I'm sure it took you know, more than a couple of days for him to come down off of the high of winning. Um, I, but, but yes, I, I would look, I, I, you, curious to, uh, to hear you say um, that, that he admitted on Austrian TV that, uh, he, you know, he had some stomach concern because I thought it was a, a, a poor match against a very, um, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the potential of Gaston, you know, he, he's not the finished product, but I just did not get, again, I called that match as well. I just did not understand how Hugo Gaston could push Dominic Team as far as he did and keep him on the court. And in the end, that, that ultimately, you, you know, is what uh, uh, really put him, made him ineffective against Diego Schwartzman in the, in the following round. So I felt disappointed for him in that particular match that he, that he didn't put Hugo Gaston away. Again, not trying to uh, undermine Hugo Gaston, but someone who has never played, um, that was their first Grand Slam match and ranked at 250. Uh, the, I mean, there was a bit of a crowd there, but I just did not understand that result. Um, uh, but I, look, a great, a, a great effort. I think he, you know, he'll be back, obviously, if we get back to a, a normal schedule next year, uh, without a doubt, team is is going to be there. Um, you know, in late in the in the second week. But I think what what, yeah, the the combination of the Hugo Gaston match and winning um, took the edge of Dominic Team making it through to a, a final at Roland Garros. No, absolutely. And I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, if Dominic Team doesn't win French Open next year, which again is not a big if, because certain Rafa Nadal will still be the favourite. So he'll be 28 plus and without a Roland Garros title. And five years ago, he looked definitely 
in my view, certain to win at least one, but he wins at US Open. So let's see what happens for Dominic Team. So Matt, uh, uh, let's talk about Diego Schwartzman. Uh, had a good run in Rome. I read the semifinals here at Roland Garros. Played a f- very competitive straight set match, straight set loss against Rafa, you know, that lasted more than three, three hours. I know it's a pandemic year, not so normal tennis year, but there has to be an upside for the Argentine. So talk about his uh, uh, tandem effort in Rome and Paris and what do you expect of him and can this be a building block for things to come in future? You know, we saw um, Pablo Carreño Busta make a second major semifinal this year at the, at the U.S. Open. And so, you know, for anyone who thought, and you know, Nick Kyrgios, I'd say, would be at the front of the list here. For <laughs> anyone who thought that that 2017 U.S. Open final was a fluke or an aberration, PCB very plainly refuted that claim. And yes, we can say that he was lucky that Djokovic got defaulted. But you know what? That was a high-level match he played against uh, Shapovalov in the quarterfinals. So it can still be said that he earned his way to the, to the semis. You know, had, had, had a little bit of fortune, but still, that Shapovalov match, it certainly seemed as though Shapo was in great shape uh, after the fourth set in which uh, PCB seemed to be wearing down. Uh, but Carreño Busta bounced back uh, as the savvy veteran that he is. And so he got back to a second major semifinal. So... You know, in terms of what the future holds for Schwartzman, you know, I think he can replicate what he did here. I mean, obviously, I, I, you know, do, he caught Dominic Team at the right time. Uh, that that doesn't take away anything from the achievement of that quarterfinal. You know, Schwartzman should have won it in straights, and yet he was he found himself down two sets to one, and he picked himself off the canvas and won those last two sets. So it was an enormous effort from Diego. Uh, he deserves everything he got at, at, at this tournament, but um, he did catch team at the right time, but he, he took advantage of it. You know, that, and that's the thing about these weird pandemic situations and, and, and weird match situations of any kind. The circumstances are always going to be a little bit different. They're going to be a little bit unique to a period in, of t- in, in time. Uh, you know, the tactics, the, the X's and O's, the matchups, those are all going to have their same generally familiar templates, maybe a few slight tweaks on the edges, but um, the larger dynamics are always going to be there. It's the, the particular circumstances in which you meet a player at a given tournament at a given time on the calendar, which are going to be different. And it's up to the professional tennis player to take advantage if those circumstances are in your favor. And if they're not in your favor, you, know, you need to find a, a workaround. For them, and so Schwartzman found solutions, and he he took advantage of the circumstances presented to him. I mean, he's been you know we know that he brings it to Nadal every time they meet. He's a guy who regularly pushes Rafa uh, on clay, and really no matter what the surface is. So if you can do that, you obviously have a lot of game. And his career was worthy of a major semifinal, and now he has gained that achievement you know to 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 nail it down so it's really just a, a a case of a lot of hard work finally rewarded at a higher level for Diego Schwartzman coming off his uh masters uh, runner up showing in Rome i mean he he has the game to be able to do this more times but to to finally notch that first major semifinal it has to be an enormous source of both relief and satisfaction for him very well deserved and, and very well said, because that's an efficient podcaster for you. Matt, they're unpacked two of my questions in one 
he covered Pablo Carina Busta and Schwartzman. And that's how the podcast <laughs> moves forward. So very well said, Matt. So Mark, you were calling a lot of matches. Did you have a chance to see Yannick Sinner? Did you call one of his matches? Again, talk of the town from last year. Uh, the kid really played uh, equal to Rafa Nadal in the first set, was serving for the set. He's a real deal. There are board comparisons on Twitter comparing him to the legendary Swede uh, for composure and, and coolness. What are your early impressions and uh, are there any intangibles you want to share with the listeners here? Uh, y- yes. Um, I, I was fortunate enough, uh, blessed enough to, to call his first round match, the, the, the first match, uh, men's match that they played on Chatrier this year um, against David Goffin. Um, and and that was, it's an interesting matchup. Obviously, we, we know Goffin is, uh, you know, a, a richly experienced player, um, perhaps at Grand Slams, a little underpowered um, over the five best of five set format. But um, Sinner came out unfazed. I, I haven't, this, this is a youngster that I haven't seen a whole lot. I haven't uh, seen enough reps of him uh, as yet. So, you know, he pleasantly surprised me with, uh, you know, winning in straight sets. The match was, I think, a couple of minutes shy of, of two hours. Um, but again, maybe the conditions and the way his game is, is built, um, you, you know, it certainly reminds me of a Tsitsipas that, you know, would be able to adapt to multiple surfaces. He's, he might have been brought up primarily on the clay courts, but uh, the, the way his game is set up, that it's uh, something that I think he could adapt um, you know, to the quicker surfaces. Um, and we saw uh, a blistering result. Um, I, I think it was in 20, was it 2019 that he won the next gen tournament in, in Milan? Yep. Do I have that correct? Uh, um, you know, on a faster surface. Um, look, he, he just worked his way through the draw. I, I, I was um, really impressed uh, with, uh, with his game and just the way that he... Um, you know, just kept kept his head down. I mean, he was, um, you know, he doesn't exude a lot of, you know, there's not much strut there um, when when he's out there playing. It's just for the moment, his head's down. Uh, he works at it. He moves exceptionally well. Um, and, and really, he gave the first test to Rafa. Uh, he served for the first set. And things could have, you know, maybe that's where the first time in Roland Garros that he showed his uh, 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 lack of experience at that level against a marquee player. But boy, he, he gave Rafa a thorough test. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe the Nadal camp might be tapping uh, Sinner on the back, you know, in a way of thanks for giving Rafa, um, you know, get, getting him ready for the final because it, it really was a hotly contested um, first two sets, and and then he disappeared, as any nineteen-year-old would. You would expect um, after playing some some a high level of tennis for two sets. But you know, when you look up at the scoreboard and see that you know you, you haven't really got anywhere, um, you know his his uh, concentration fell away ever so slightly. But for me, you know, you you'd, I, I certainly would put him on that list of you know that next gen uh, along with. Sitsipas um, and a number of others, but uh, uh, yeah, exciting prospect. Yeah, very exciting indeed. I'm sure this is not the last we'll be talking about him. Uh, he has a lot of potential. So I think we covered quite a ground here on the on the men's side. So let's switch. 
to Iga Schwantek's win, Matt Semek. Again, uh, one-of-a-kind player, very popular already for her uh, creativity on the court, great forehand, and she dropped just 28 games to win this Roland Garros. This is like the Mary Pierce, Steffi Graf, Monica Seles territory. So Matt is a writer. I mean, what are your observations and how much of uh, Schwantek, I don't know if I'm saying the name right, did you see and uh, what a fortnight? So, you know, the first thing that needs to be said about this is that, you know, pandemic tennis, tennis with few to no fans, it requires the athlete to find both energy and also uh, clarity from within. And I want to make this one point about the the men very quickly. You know, uh, the fact that there was just a few hundred fans at Chatrier for the Nadal-Djokovic final um, people will say, well, hey, the crowds don't like Djokovic generally. Um, you know, it, they, a full stadium wouldn't have really helped him. And I'm going to disagree there because I think that Djokovic loves to play against the crowd. He, we've, we've seen it so many times that he draws energy being uh, the contrary force to a pro Federer or pro Nadal crowd he draws energy from that and people wondered why he was so passive you know I think the the lack of a crowd wasn't maybe the reason for that but it was a reason for that it was part of the mixture and it'll be interesting to see you know if we have a vaccine in time for Roland Garros next year or if they can put at least like uh, 50 percent fans in the stands you know how the the dynamics of a possible rematch with Rafa might be different so to, to now turn that back to Sviatek, uh, you know, the, without crowds, she found a zone of tranquility and clarity, and she stayed there the whole tournament. You know, n- only two sets went 6-4, uh, and lots of breadsticks, lots of 6-2s. I mean, you know, she just utterly demolished the field, never even needed a 7-5 set or a tiebreaker set. So, I mean... It's, it's empirically true that Sviatek uh, found that inner clarity and motivation. She found inner peace in this quieter, very unusual environment, and she maximized it. So, you know, watching sports of all kinds in the pandemic socket, I mean, the NBA Finals, you're a huge NBA guy, I know. You know, it, it was a different deal, and the Miami Heat dealt with it a lot better than the uh, Milwaukee Bucks did for instance, um, and the Los Angeles Clippers dealt with it terribly as well, but the Lakers, uh, you know, were extremely strong. Uh, We've seen teams and solo athletes, you know, deal with the pandemic sports in very different ways, and and it's been one of the great variables of all of this, and Sviatek very clearly took hold of this, liked it, stayed in it, and then when Sophia Kennan uh, challenged her in that compelling first set, did she fall off the ledge? Did, did it all spiral out of control? No. She rescued herself. And as soon as she won that first set, it really did seem uh, for most people watching that, you know, that was really where that match uh, decisively turned. And then she made the strong finishing kick home. Uh, so finding clarity in the midst of a crowd, you know, that's one kind of challenge. And tennis players this year, uh, certainly, in the, you know, the later in this year, not before the pandemic, obviously, they've had to just find their motivation and their clarity from within. And Sviatek, by a large margin, 
was the best player at doing that uh, on the women's side and really, you know, better than any other men's player except for Rafa. Hmm. So, Mark, uh, how much of her tennis did you watch and uh, what do you make of her forehand? That's the talk of the town again. Uh, is it a clay court forehand? Is it an all court forehand? Uh, how do you see it technically, if you want to <laughs> spend some time here? <laughs> yeah, it, um, uh, I, I, did, I did get to see uh, Iga play a, a few times and I have over the last couple of years primarily uh, what, what instigated some interest in uh, Schwantek's game is uh, one of the commentators for the World Feed. Um, he's a British uh, former player. Um, he has spent some time working with her, um, and, that, and that was generated uh, at Wimbledon a, a number of years ago. And, and so he has been a, an a, observer, an advisor. Um, she has gone over to London to, to work with him. And so over the last few years, we've a group of us that are commentating together uh, have just watched her um, slowly build up her game. Um, and this commentator, uh, you, you know, spoke, has always spoken so highly of um, her, her ability. Now, when I saw her play this year um, at Roland Garros, the forehand, it, it really did seem different from uh, it, that, that she's changed it um, somewhat. It just didn't look to be as smooth. Um, uh, and, and the ability uh, that this commentator had spoke of, of Schwantek's game, that she could overpower and hit through a lot of the, her opposition, it, to me, it just didn't seem like that in the early rounds that she would be able to uh, continue on I'm glad to say that I was proven very, very wrong. Um, uh, you, you know, to, to see her wipe um, Simona Halep uh, to the floor, um, it just with, with uh, constant hitting corner to corner, not just from the forehand, but from the backhand. Um, but I, yeah, I just wonder over time, how, how well would that forehand hold up under pressure? Uh, because now there is a target on her back, being a Grand Slam champion. Um, and, you know, she, look, she does have a game that I feel will be able to, to, to adapt to multiple surfaces. Um, I think time will tell. Uh, but I do know that the, uh, a, a col our, our colleague who was commentating with us had been uh, pushed in the background ever so slightly. So he hadn't been able to uh, keep working with her. She has a new coach that is traveling full time and he was aware that um they they had made some changes to her technique um you, you know off the ground and i think that probably is to you know why you know i felt her forehand uh she was striking it very differently it it's a it's an abbreviated takeaway um but it 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 certainly stood up to uh you know well the biggest challenge um by by storming through the fight uh, up to the final and including the final yeah, I mean, uh, this is, again, a very talented player on the horizon and uh, she delighted the crowds. But uh, not to be a fierce critic here, a lot of people, the counter-argument is, uh, do we hold it against her that she didn't play uh, stiff competition? You both can take this. Uh, I know we only can, player can only play who's in front of them. But yep. uh, you think the draw also worked out? Uh, Mark, you want to go first and then Matt, you can add on the same. Yeah, you know, Sakiba, you, you said it. Uh, that, that's how I would respond is you can only beat who is up the other end. Um, 
and, and like I said, the same with the men's, you know, the first three matches for both Novak and for Rafa this year, maybe, maybe Rafa had four rounds. Um, again, not to take anything away from, you know, the excitement of surrounding Seb quarter, um, but Rafa, you know, just whipped him in straight sets. It was a, a close first couple of games, but the but then the scoreboard was so decisively in the favour of uh, Nadal. Um, but you know, it's not it's not their fault. There, you know, though there, there were guys that were winning matches. The results were very different this year uh, at the U.S. Open as well as Roland Garros and uh, you know Schwantek. Uh, you you still have to get over the line. Um, and she was able to do it. Um, you know, the same could be said about, you know, would, would have a crowd haunted uh, or, or made a difference um, to, to the result for, for some of the matches in the women's? You know, may, maybe so. Maybe it was a blessing that there wasn't hours. a complete um, a, a capacity crowd for the women's final that might have had an impact because I think in the past... That's that's maybe where um, Schwantek, you know, on the big stage, um, hasn't hasn't been able to handle it. But you know, even now, I mean, she's coming out and speaking about the pros of working with a um, a, a psychologist, a sports psychologist, and the the power that that bring has brought to her game. So, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. So, Matt. Uh... How do, you, how do you see my question, even though I know she beat uh, Simona Halep, who was a uh, pre-tournament favourite of many. Uh, how do you see her uh, march to this title uh, in terms of the quality she faced? Well, you know, to be able to destroy Halep the way she did, I mean, if, if you do that at Roland Garros, you know, you can have a, a few uh, comparatively softer spots in the draw, as she did in the, in the semifinals, for instance. And it's still a, an impressive achievement just on the merits. I mean, uh, you, you can't go deep into a tournament without getting through each of the stages. So, you know, when we look at a draw, I mean, obviously it stands out if you have a tough match, you know, all seven matches or, or five of the seven matches. But if you have an easy draw the first three rounds, but then you have Halep in the fourth round, I mean, before the tournament, most people would look at that and say, well, she's not going to get past the fourth round. So, you know, it, it, it's all – there are degrees and measures when you compare the strength of a draw. And so the fact that she had Halep in her path and not only won that but then, you know, went on to win the title, I think it minimizes that. I think the, the example of a, of a lighter draw was the player uh, Sviatek beat – in the final, Sophia Kennan, and this doesn't take anything away from Kennan, but like this would represent a, a softer draw. Bogdan in the second round, Barra in the third, Farrow in the fourth, Collins in the quarterfinals. Okay, got Petra Kvitova in, in the semi, so that was a tough one, but, you know, Clay is not Kvitova's preferred surface, of course, so that, I mean, like Kennan's draw is was comparatively no, and notably softer than Sviatek if we're just going to compare the roads of the two finalists. But now, having said that, Sagab, here's the bigger point. You know, women's tennis is in a very weird but not bad position. And that, that position is that you're not seeing the same names in the semis and finals of major tournaments one after the other. They don't generally carry over from one tournament to the next. You know, last year, 
there were you know there's all there are 16 semifinalists at the majors per year per tour so the wta's 16 semifinal slots last year 12 different women or 14 different women um played in those semifinals and only two of them made a repeat appearance in semis that was serena and spitalina and then 12 other women made one semifinal appearance apiece and andrew burton our in-house uh, analyst has talked about this a lot on the show. So the women's tennis at the majors, it's very unstable. What happens in one tournament doesn't is offers no indication of what's going to happen in the next major tournament. And there's generally very little carryover right now. And so we saw that uh, at, from in this transition from the U.S. to the French. So we're in a situation where there's so much depth, but it's but it's spread out so evenly that you're going to get significant differentiations in the quality or toughness of a major tournament draw. And so the, the, the point which might be underappreciated at, at this recent Roland Garros is that we might have had a draw which was this volatile and this uh, unevenly distributed, even if higher name players had been there, even if Serena had been there, even if uh, so, uh, Ash Barty had been there, uh, even if Bianca Andreescu had been there. So women's tennis is in a spot where the quality of tennis is really is really very good, and the and more specifically, the quality of tennis produced by the champion is excellent. I mean, Naomi Osaka in New York, Sviatek in Paris. They were both absolutely outstanding. I mean, you, you, you had to give their tennis, if you were grading it, it would be a straight A, if not an A+. Just absolutely outstanding tennis is being produced uh, by these women's major champions. You just don't see the regularity of big names and familiar rivalries late in tournaments. So it's a situation where if you can manage to acquire a certain degree of consistency and the draw breaks right for you, you might not play the best tennis in the tournament, but you might get to the latter stages of tournaments more than anyone else. That could be the identity that Sophia Kennan, for instance, carves out. I mean, she didn't have an extremely threatening draw, but she didn't have that bad day at the office, which Halep did against uh, Sviatek. Uh, so, you know, she just kind of did what she was supposed to do and she made a second major final. So we could see in the next two, three years, we could see someone like Kennan um, just, you know, quietly make your way through a major tournament draw because the, the particularities of the draw happen to line up in her, in her favor and she finds a certain degree of consistency to manage it well. Uh, you know, we, we could see players who whose game is not supremely imposing uh, the way Serena is at her best, the way Muguruza was at her best four years ago, uh, when she looked like a player who was going to, you know, just take off and have a stratospheric kind of career. Uh, we might not see players who have uh, overwhelming, imposing styles and who look dominant, but they, they go through tournaments in a business-like way. They know how to compete. They know how to win close third sets. Uh, it, it's just a very unique time in women's tennis in that regard. It, it is, and I think what he just said makes a lot of sense uh, that it is a function of uh, maybe lack of top-tier dominance or top-tier stability, like Andrew says, uh, compared to the ATP. But this is what the ATP could look like post-Big Three. Mark, you have any thoughts on how the two tours 
uh, have uh, top tier identity, which is uh, quite contrasting. There's like the big three and now Dominic team who's played two finals this year and a very solid support cast, but the outcome of the business end is very different to what the WTA has. How do we view the two products? I mean, you're in the business. Uh, how do you guys talk about this? Maybe when you go out to dinner with your tennis friends. <laughs> um, yeah, pro- probably, uh, you know, for, for the, for the men, I, I think, um, you know, after the, the, the marquee, obviously at the moment, the, the top three, uh, you, you know, the next tier after that, you know, would, would be led by team. Um, and, and I, it's just interesting. I was just jotting down as we're discussing, uh, you know, through this podcast, uh, you know, just writing down some other names that, that excite me, um, you know, a, a, along with Sitsipas and Yannick Sinner. Um, you know, that I have a softness, a, a, a warm heart, I should say, for Denis Shapovalov um, being left-hander. And, you know, it, it uh, reminds me, not that I saw Rod Laver play a whole lot, but uh, the, the stories that have been passed on to me, thanks to my, um, yeah, you, you know, uh, hereditary Australian culture, um, that it would remind me, my mind, Dennis reminds me of how Rocket would have played. Um, but, you, you know, they, they've yet to step up. Um, you throw in Sasha Zverev as well, you know, maybe a, a, with his ability to adapt to multiple surfaces. Um, uh, you, you know, and I haven't, I haven't put in Medvedev into that list. I haven't put in Nick Kyrgios. Um, or Gial Yassim. I, or or Felix, I, you know, for for me, uh, Orge Alessim at, at this stage, I'm not yet sold on him. Um, you know, the 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 reason that I I mentioned those the, those fellas that I have is because I, I feel like they have depth in their game. Depth allows them to to change from Plan A to Plan B to Plan C. They can do it. They they have results on multiple surfaces. For me, I just I'm not really convinced just yet um, that Felix is is up in that league. Um, I think he's blessed with uh, you know genes that allow him. You know he's been ahead of the curve since he's been a youngster physically, um, and, and I just at this stage I I I I have a few reservations about him because he plays like a lot of others play out there, um, but. You know, I think it's still an exciting time for the men, especially when you've got Nick Kyrgios, uh, you know, who who has sat out um, through through the hiatus and won't start until next year. And of course, Medvedev with with uh, you know the excitement that he shows. But I'm not sure whether winning a Slam is in there right now um, within the realm of possibilities. For even though Medvedev made the final of uh, the U.S. Open last year. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, he could go all the way. I'm not sure even that Kyrgios, um, you know, his best result has only been a quarterfinals of a Grand Slam. So, um, but they add excitement and depth to the men's men's side. For, for the women, yeah, they, there are, you know, a number of women that are, are starting to, fil- you know, move on up, filter up. And, uh, you, you know, I think... Um, for me personally, it was disappointing not to see Ash Barty at Roland Garros, um, and it's it's ultimately the, the the athlete's decision, given the the circumstances that we're all living in right now. 
but there's something that uh, that was inside of me that had she been there, she would have been highly competitive because of her ability to adapt her game. Uh, and <laughs> I have to say it, but a backhand slice in the women's game right now, can it might not be a shot that hits a lot of winners, but it sets up the point in order for someone like Ash Barty to hit a lot of winners. And um, I, I just think the conditions, uh, I don't think she would have been phased by the heavy, damp um, conditions at all. In fact, I think it might have you know, allowed her to go almost all the way again. And, uh, um, but, it, you know, she wasn't there. But I think, uh, you know, she's, she's you, you know, uh, looking forward, I would imagine, looking forward to getting a, a fresh start in 2021, um, uh, you, you know, with, uh, with the prospect of, you, you know, picking up more slams. Sure. So we're approaching the, I know Matt has to drop in four minutes. So uh, I'll give the floor to Matt if he has a question for you, because I have a couple more questions that I would like to throw at uh, you, Mark. But, you know, Matt usually uh, has done hosting of this show with me. So Matt, if you have a question for Mark, I know today you were as a guest analyst on your own show, but if you want to ask Mark something, uh, now is the time. <laughs> yeah, Mark, so, you know, Given all the irregularities and abnormalities of, of these two major tournaments, just a remarkable six-week period in tennis, what did this these six weeks do to fundamentally change your impressions about either a player, a coach, uh, about uh, the USTA, the French Tennis Federation, uh, about the sport's uh, future in 2021? Any significant way in which these past six weeks changed uh, your view of, of a significant issue or, or topic or public figure in tennis? Hmm. I, you know, it's an it's a, uh, excellent question. Um, what, what, what it showed me during the, the, the hiatus, uh, not necessarily in the last six weeks since the return to tennis has occurred, um, but the resiliency of our sport that it almost has uh, gone back to um, enhancing club-level tennis. I think play, play it for me, what I've, I've noticed, and certainly, certainly here in the US, and I know, you know even back in Australia, uh, in, the, you know, in Europe as well, club tennis, um, because these players haven't been able to play on an international level, but in certain areas, the clubs have being able to rejuvenate um, the, the ones in certainly areas that weren't in the severest of lockdowns, shutdown, shelter-in-place orders. Um, but it's because everyone has uh, been able to perhaps when, when the green light was there to go back and, and use tennis clubs as a way of getting outside and, you know, enjoying this incredible sport. So, um, Certainly, I, I, with with great relief, I think it you, you know um, the return to tennis at a professional level has provided people around the world um, such a um, a joy, perhaps not to be there on site uh, and witness it firsthand, but that our our sport will survive um, through these very difficult times because you know it is still high level, top quality tennis. Um, whether you're there on site watching it as a fan or whether you can watch it on TV. Oh, very well said. So, 
Yeah, uh, Matt had to leave because he had another commitment. So I'll wrap the show with you. A uh, few more questions, if you can bear with me. Sure. Uh, you talked about Ash Barty's slice. Another shot that was extensively used on both sides of the draw in this fortnight was a drop shot. Yep. From Gaston to Djokovic to Schwartzman to Nadal. Everybody's reading it. Some people, some, some use as a big part of the arsenal. And then Iga, Iga Schwantek used it. Uh, was it just a resurgence of the shot due to the conditions? Do you think uh, this has just all happened together? No coincidence? And uh, your views on the drop shot. I mean, I don't know if there's a question <laughs> in there, but yeah, that's, that's a shot that was talked about a lot. Yep. I, look, I, I didn't um, get to watch um, a whole lot of tennis in Rome, um, but I understand the conditions were, were warmer, um, much more livelier. Uh, but certainly by the time I arrived in Roland Garros, it's not like um, that was what the talking point was. I think at Roland Garros, once the weather forecast, um, uh, that you could check out the weather forecast over the whole tournament, being damp, being cold, uh, having uh, the, the rain, um, you know, almost uh, there every day, um, the drop shot was was really the talk of the tournament. Um, each day it was, you know, we, we wound up our broadcast with uh, five shots of the day and generally two, if not three, belonged to players on both sides of the draw that had executed the drop shot. Um, uh, you, you know, it, I, I felt at the beginning of the tournament that there were, it was going to be two types of players that possibly would be left standing as, as the winner. Um, whether it was someone that was going to have height advantage on the men's side that had a big serve and was just kind of very carefree and able to hit through, um, hit players off the court. But against that, that, but that really goes against the trend of clay where the court was playing, you know, very damp. And the, and the alternative for me was someone that actually played a backhand slice and possessed you know, some touch um, and the ability to throw in the drop shot. And I guess that's what, uh, uh, you know, uh, shone through. Djokovic executed it from, from day one. Um, uh, what I thought was a ridiculous amount uh, against Mikhail Ema in his first round. Um, but it was, you know, given the conditions, it, it was the, the hottest shot. Um, and it didn't have to be the perfectly executed drop shot either because a, a short uh, a ball, a, a drop shot that maybe went a little deeper. And as long as it had enough uh, underspin, some slice on it, that it continued to die, it made the opponents who were chasing down that shorter drop shot ball to make a quick decision. Do they either keep following it in to net uh, or do they try and retreat? Um, and uh, I, I, I thought it was the conditions as the, just the reason why so many players were um, executing the drop shot over the, the two weeks of Roland Garros. Yeah, so that brings me to the last uh, but most uh, interesting question uh, is the sports psychologist. Iga Schwantek used a sports psychologist. Maybe it's yep. not a very new thing, but uh, due to the you know, lonely nature and you know, the competitive uh, nature of the sport, lone travels, everybody has, you know, you're, you're, you're traveling with your colleagues, but they're also your rivals. Uh, do you see? Do you feel like this will become the norm if it already is not? Your views on this, uh, this path of having a sports psychologist travel with a player? Mm. Look, it wasn't. It wasn't a part 
of, of the sport it wasn't prevalent when when I was playing. Um, my, my psychologists uh, were my coach and and uh, um, uh, my trainer, uh, and I should say, I should say our coach and our trainer because Todd and I, um, as the Woodies. I guess we, we were able to bounce ideas off of each other on, on the court, on the doubles court, um, you know, and, and quite often we would discuss how we played against opponents in singles earlier that day that when we got onto the doubles court, you know, you could help each other, you could counsel each other. Um, but ultimately, if it wasn't, you know, to, turning towards each other, we turned to our coach and our trainer um, as pers- as people who acted as our psychologists um, uh, and, and motivators, um, so I, now as a sometimes coach, uh, sometimes commentator, um, you know I've come across a few players that I've worked with that have opted to work with a sports psychologist. I I haven't um, been adverse to them working with them um, if it is to come up with ideas on how to handle situations um, I, I think it is is yeah I, I I'm, I'm not sure exactly whether whether I'm you know I'm 100% on board with it just yet Siki because I I think there are um, some players that have relied so much on the sports psychologists it's almost like they've They've um, moved away from actually having someone there um, watching them, a tennis coach, and and working on their game. I, I think I'm a little, a little. Maybe maybe Akirios can use someone like that because he's been pretty open to not want to have a coach. Maybe <laughs> no, this is not. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of his his tennis. Uh, you know, there a lot goes around Nick Kyrgios. Uh, you cannot be a fan of everything he does, but I think uh, this is a. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is like uncharted waters from what you're saying. And maybe this is a new development. Maybe my question uh, wasn't uh, accurate that this could be the new norm. But yeah, this is an interesting thought if, uh, you know, if this does become some sort of a mainstay for some players. Um, yep, yep I def- def- definitely. And I, and, I, and I do agree with your assessment, we, even with Nick Kyrgios. I think, he, I think he could benefit from having someone there with him. Um, who he can speak to uh, day in, day out, and someone who he can respect. I think at the moment, um, whilst he's travelling along either with a a friend or family, I think it provides too much of an out for him. So um, I think it's just about being responsible to yourself. Um, And, you know, for, for, you know, eager Schwantek to come out and positively speak about her experiences you know, working with a, a sports psychologist, I think, you know, good, good on her. Um, and she was able to, as Matt had mentioned, you know, she bounced back from adversity last year. She had to face her demons in the quarterfinals against Simona Halep, who really, you, you know, uh, gave her a walloping 12 months ago or over 12 months ago at Roland Garros. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes that's that's pretty hard to, to deal with. But, you know, she was able to implement obviously some different strategy uh, and how she approached that match. And, uh, you know, it, it worked well for her. So, um, you know, I think, I think there are, that they will be, you know, more and more players coming out uh, and openly 
stating that they're working with someone because ultimately it's about trying to, as an athlete, tennis player every day is looking at the positives. Uh, you know, um, it, I don't think tennis, you can't come out victorious if you're focusing on the negative. So I, I think overall the a sports psychologist is just highlighting, you know, the positives for a tennis player. Sure. On that note, I think we covered quite, quite, a, quite a ground here. Mark Woodford, brilliant as always and generous as always. So, on behalf of Tennyson Accent, it was a pleasure and I thank you for keeping us company for this uh, Roland Garros review. Sakib, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for including me. All right, before we wrap the show, Matt, so we have to talk about the big achievement, uh, which is uh, Rafael Nadal. Uh, it's a monumental task uh, of equaling the 20 Grand Slams uh, of Roger, with Roger Federer now. They are the co-record uh, holders and uh, looks like what we saw in Nadal is, you know, is good for more than few slams. And this this conversation is so broad. Federer's coming back in uh, in January. Djokovic is the man to beat in almost every tournament he enters. So how do we absorb uh, for a minute what happened and you know acknowledge this moment? So Matt, unpack the way you feel this is appropriate for this monumental achievement of Nadal. Not only just winning 13th time in Paris, but now he's right at the top of the summit with 20 majors. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever two members of the big three play in a major final, it's, it's high stakes poker. I mean, we know this and, you know, speaking to the fans of all three players, let's, let's just be honest about this. You know, you either win or you lose. And if you win, boy, you get a certain extra amount of glory. And if you lose, you know, you miss out on a real opportunity. And, you know, for fans of Roger Federer, um, you know, last year, you know, the two championship points against Djokovic. I mean, it's, I know Federer fans hate when anyone brings it up, but I mean, you know, if, if Federer had won one of those two points, he would have had a Wimbledon final victory over Djokovic, which is something he didn't have before. So, I mean, Federer would have had something he hadn't done before and Djokovic instead, you know, claimed a, a special achievement. And so it's now Djokovic has to wear the hat that Federer did last year at Wimbledon um, in, in Paris. Um, you know, Djokovic has to wear the hat of the guy who had this incredible opportunity to do something special, something he hadn't done before, not beating Nadal at Roland Garros. He did that in 2015, but to beat him in a final. I mean, and that is in many ways the hardest thing to do in modern men's tennis, to beat Rafa at a Roland Garros final. So Djokovic was playing for that place in history. He was playing for that special bit of glory. And he didn't get it. And I mean, and so it's just, it's a, it's a do or die, yes or no kind of thing. So Djokovic missed out on that. He also missed out on the ability to say that he was the first of the big three to get the Grand Slam twice over. Um, and, you know, at least two majors, two of the four, uh, two titles in each of the four major tournaments. So, I mean, this is just high stakes poker. And um, because Nadal beat Djokovic again in a Roland Garros final, it's now a situation where, if Djokovic loses another Roland Garros final to Rafa next year, 2022, he will tie Federer for, with four losses to Rafa in Roland Garros finals. So, I mean, the 2020 tie between Rafa and Federer, that's obviously one thing, but it's also just the interplay between and among these guys in major finals. And, and it's a marvel to just to consider how many times each different player has stopped the other prevented the other from winning a major championship. I mean, their, their overall 
uh, major title count now is 57. And, you know, with, when Nadal and Djokovic secured their spots in Sunday's final, that guaranteed that the big three title count was going to increase. So they entered Sunday with a total of 36 between the two, Nadal 19-17. And now it's Nadal 20-17 over Djokovic, uh, joining Federer. So it's just amazing how each of these matchups uh, is, is high-stakes poker, and there's just a whole section of tennis history which is instantly rewritten um, when, when these guys go at it. And, you know, look, if I'm going to praise Djokovic here and I'm going to praise Nadal there and I'm going to praise Federer over there, I mean, look, there's a lot to praise with each of these three guys. So if you, if you make a positive comment about one, it doesn't mean it's a negative comment about the other. And vice versa, if you say that this guy missed an opportunity here, you know, Djokovic missed an opportunity uh, this past Sunday, Federer missed the opportunity last July, you know, it's not a skating condemnation. It's just saying that they missed an opportunity. That's that's all it is. It's not some deeper criticism. Um, but, you know, it, it just shows that these, these really are very high-stakes encounters, and, and we have to acknowledge that. All right, and then uh, the GOAT discussion, the GOAT debate, that's something we haven't really spoken at this platform. And uh, But this is the time where, if not the discussion, but we need to talk about Rafa Nadal's achievement. I mean, uh, you've been writing about tennis professionally for a while. Uh, 20 majors, uh, even Federer, I mean, got to 20 a couple of years ago. First, for the longest time, 17 seemed the mark when Federer was stuck at 17 for those four or five years. So let's talk about, just reflect actually on Nadal. Uh, as a sports writer, someone who's followed his career, uh, I mean, I don't even know what the right question is, but did 20 seem possible a few years ago when he was having, you know, 2014 and 2015, those couple of seasons where there were a lot of uh, not Nadal-like performances or losses where, you know, we didn't, we weren't accustomed to see him go out like that, especially at the U.S. Open when he lost to Fabio Fanini and then a year later lost to Luca Pui. So let's go back in time and then just appreciate how, you know, how fortunate we ha- we are as tennis fans to see another player go up to number 20. Yeah, so you, you, you make a, an excellent reference to that 2015-2016 dry period and it was uh, it was it was a time when it, there were legitimate questions about Nadal, much like Djokovic in 2017 and into the first part of 2018. I mean, they both had their wilderness moments. Uh, you know, for Federer, it was uh, 2013 and, and early 2014. Um, you know, Federer certainly in, in in late 2013. You know, after that loss to. Tommy Robredo at the U.S. Open, you know, it, a lot of people, I mean, you remember this, I mean, it was, it was impossible to, to, to uh, forget how many people said, oh, Federer needs to retire, he needs to protect his legacy, and so Rafa then got that in 2016, Djokovic certainly heard it from some corners of the tennis world in early 2018 when he was slogging along, so they've all gone through their, their difficult periods, and so with Nadal, I think the most striking fact of his resurgence these past four seasons, 2017 through 2020, uh, it's not Roland Garros, though, though it remains, of course, extraordinarily impressive that he keeps fending off, well, you know, it was Federer 10 years ago. Now he's fending off Djokovic. He's also fended off Dominic Thiem 
twice in a Roland Garros final. You know, that he beats back all challengers again and again and again. Certainly amazing. But I think in terms of, you know, the overall journey to 20, it's that he's been able to win U.S. Opens in 2017 and 2019. I think that if you asked uh, 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 or if you told a Nadal fan in 2016, he's going to win multiple U.S. Opens in addition to, you know, reclaiming his throne in Paris, probably would have met with a lot of disagreement. And uh, it's been his ability to uh, boost his hard court title count along with the clay count and also doing well at Wimbledon. And, and just imagine if he had beaten Djokovic in that 2018 Wimbledon semifinal, you know, he would have played a worn down Kevin Anderson in the final, almost certain to win that. Uh, you know, he could have had titles on three different major titles on three different surfaces uh, in the past few years. So in many ways, the journey to 20 for Rafa, specifically over these past four years, it's impressive, not just for Roland Garros, uh, which we shouldn't take for granted, but he's really been a better player on all three surfaces at the major tournaments. So he he's finding solutions not just in these different conditions on clay. You know, Roland Garros in October, Roland Garros with different balls, the Wilson instead of the Babolat, uh, Roland Garros under a roof. You know, putting that narrative to bed, which is connected to that 2018. Wimbledon semi against Djokovic, it, you know, it, it's that he's finding solutions everywhere, not just on clay. All right, so there you, there you have it. I mean, uh, this is a monumental achievement, and uh, Matt weighed on it uh, with, uh, with some perspective on how the journey has been, not for Nadal, but also for two of his biggest rivals. And this is an ongoing conversation, as everybody's saying that the book is not finished yet. They all are still playing, but Nadal... Uh, has, uh, this was his week, his tournament, and you know he just made his claim to the GOAT discussion even stronger. While Djokovic will have a say, Federer is still in the mix uh, of his career. So there's a lot going on, and not to offend any fan base, we'll be back uh, eventually one day You know, talking about this uh, more in detail. And it's time to sign off at Tennis with an Accent with uh, Matt Zemek, Mark Woodford, and Sakib Ali. Bye for now. <laughs>